friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are very glad at the TCA that you join us week after week on Conversations with Consequences. This week happens to be Ascension Sunday, so I hope all of you are having a beautiful weekend. Today, we have two good friends of the show coming back to us. We have Catholic author Melissa Overmeyer, who is going to tell us about her latest stirring book called From Worry to Wonder, A Catholic Guide to Finding Peace Through Scripture. This is a wonderful book all the time, but especially these days when so many worries oppress us, so many ugly things happening around us. Many of us just worry all the time, even when things, even when terrible things aren't happening. This book can help all of us. But first, we have Dr. Jennifer Roback-Morse of the Ruth Institute that I highly recommend to all of you. She is coming back to us to talk about the sexual revolution and just how uh, sort of the big picture concept of the sexual revolution and how it has changed the way all of us interact with each other in so many negative senses. Once the Supreme Court stops propping up the sexual revolution with all these uh, imagined rights, like the right to abortion, things are going to get reshuffled. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Morris. Thanks for having me. Dr. Morris, I really like to to talk to you on on our show because you have a way of pointing out the bigger picture. Because all of us, and I'm sure you you believe this the way I do, is a lot of most all of us are sort of swimming in this environment that we're living in and taking a lot of things for granted as though they've always been like that. A lot of things for granted in the way people relate to each other in intimate ways, the way the family has come to be understood in the last few decades. I think it's very important to take a step back and, and look at the, the big picture of why why things are happening around us, because it's very difficult sometimes. We all get tunnel vision. I think we're very concerned with our with our one little patch of, of, of things that we're looking at. Do you agree with me that, that it's easy to get that kind of tunnel vision? Goodness me. Yes, of course. Of course. I mean, uh, my, my doctorate's actually in economics, and one thing economics teaches is division of labor. You know, uh, you can't get anything done if you're trying to do everything. You know, you have to be focused on on some particular goods or services or product or whatever it is. You know, that's just the normal way of business because we're finite creatures and we can't do everything. And so the, the people who are giving their lives to running uh, pregnancy care centers cannot at the same time be introducing legislation and cannot be at the same time uh, educating, uh, let's say, attorneys as to what the legal ins and outs are of their profession, you know, and how they might best bring a case and, you know, all that kind of thing. It takes a lot of specialization to get things done. And yet all of those elements are important to to building a true culture of life and to overcoming some of the um, the dysfunction, I guess you could say, that have been now built into our society. So every once in a while, I think it's extremely helpful for everybody, no matter what your, you know, what your passionate niche is, to take a step back and look at the big picture and see how your niche fits in with all the other things going on. And that's a way that you can end up being more effective at what you're doing. And that, that's what we hope at the Ruth Institute, that uh, we want to talk to people who are 
passionate already about the social issues, any any branch of the social issues, really, marriage, life, family, all that whole uh, complex of issues. We want to talk to anybody who's passionate about it and who wants to do better, who wants to do, be more effective at what they're already doing. Um, we're not interested in people who sit around and complain. You know, uh, I don't have time for that. You don't have time for that. You think you do, but you don't. <laughs> you know, one thing, one thing I really like about the Ruth Institute and your work there is that you, I, I believe that you look at the bigger, broader cultural currents, because um, there are these giant cultural currents that are happening to us as we speak. They're happening to us, to our families, to our children. Mm -hmm. Our children are growing up in them, right? Whether that's the sort of, the the way the family is evaporating (laughs) as the the union of one man, one woman and their children, Um, the way that uh, sexuality is a a free-for-all and that that's sort of an accepted a, a very accepted thing and any kind of sexual ethic or sexual morality is seen as a terrible imposition that, that can wreck your life or wreck your chances at happiness. Right. Um, so that's just to mention two of them. But at the Ruth Institute, you do um, look at that big picture, the, the big canvas that says, you know, we're, we're existing in this one little spot uh, in time and place, but we are being buffeted by, by very big um big currents that are yes. that are sweeping through the way that we understand ourselves and each other. Yes, yes, that's I think that's very true. And and that is what we do. Uh, that is what I do. And I've built kind of an organization around me uh, and around a certain set of ideas that I've come up with because precisely because it's it's too big for one person to handle. You know, um, you know, early on when I, when my kids were leaving the house and and I, and I could get back into, you know, some kind of professional activity a little bit more. You know, I asked myself, well, what am I going to do? What's my next chapter? And I, at some point I, and I don't know what put this into my mind, Grazi, but at some point. Um, it occurred to me that becoming a big celebrity and having a big following, a big personal following, that that was never going to be good enough. Because even if I had a huge following and, you know, it was like whoever whoever it was at that time isn't the same as who it is now. But even if you have a huge following, there's only so much one person can do. And so if you're really going to address these problems, you got to have an army. you got to have a lot of people, you know, and they've got to be equipped and you got to get out of their way and let them do, you know. Uh, so it can't be all about me. And, and that was the impulse I had when I founded the Ruth Institute, and we, we've stuck to that vision um, pretty pretty well, I think, you know, that we try to train other people and equip other people, and including not just people who have letters behind their name, but the average Joe, the average Jane who wants to make a difference. I want those people. Yeah, I want them to make a difference. That's what the whole pro-life movement is anyways, you know. It's, it's full of ordinary people who want to make a difference and who have trained themselves uh, or have been trained by some branch of the pro-life movement, you know, to be effective. Those are the people that we're looking for at the Ruth Institute, people who want to go beyond the the life issues and into the whole of marriage and family and our understanding of human sexuality. Because it is all one giant issue, you know, and, and the big giant issue is what is the meaning of sex in our lives? What is it for? What, what are we supposed to do with it? How are we supposed to think about it? You know, that's what connects all of these issues um, that seem to be at, at maybe not at odds with one another, but seem to be completely different. Um, if you've got a unified vision of what that is, you can address all of those issues a little bit more easily, I think. And, what, and the Catholic one thing, Church. 
One yeah, thing the that's Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say this one last thing. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. The Catholic the Catholic Church has a coherent vision mm-hmm. of marriage, family, and human sexuality. And the sexual revolutionaries have a big picture worldview, but their worldview is incoherent. The moving parts don't all fit together. They self-contradict themselves all the time. Um, and uh, and I think most of your listeners can think of two or three examples right off the top of their heads. Well, this, is, this is what I wanted to say to you, that it's very interesting, the moment that we're living in now, is that the sexual revolutionaries have... They've drawn out their 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 logic to the extent that the 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 absolute lack of coherence is evident to everyone, because I think yeah. when the sexual revolution started, people um, people could could understand parts of it, and some of it made sense from a very you know from sort of a very human, very basic perspective. But it has accelerated to the point, and even just recently, the amount of change that has happened and the amount of lunacy that has crept in mm-hmm. <laughs> and that we're all being exposed to and our, and we see our children being exposed to. It, yes. It's yeah. the, the incoherence and the irrationality um, is, is, very, is very apparent now. I mean, the, the emperor yes. is really not wearing any clothes and everyone can see it. That's exactly right, and I'm sure all your listeners can think of a couple of examples of that without without us even having to spell them out. But, you know, just to take one of the earliest and most basic ones, in 1965, the Supreme Court handed down Griswold versus Connecticut, which basically said that there is a right to marital privacy, um, and the right to marital privacy means that no state in the United States has the right to regulate contraception in any way whatsoever. And so very quickly, and they claimed that that's all they wanted was the right for married couples with serious health problems to be able to access contraception any way they wanted, any time they wanted. Well, it ve- that very quickly fell apart into now single people have the right to use contraception. Now minors have the right. Now minors have the right without their parents' knowledge and consent. All of these things just, um, just and, and then of course you have to have unlimited abortion to back it up mm-hmm. because what that is really all about, it isn't. it wasn't really about the right of marital privacy. That was their cover story. What it was really about was the right for every person to have sex whenever they wanted to without a live baby ever showing up. For you and me and everybody, anybody who wants to, to be able to act as if sex is a sterile act with no social consequences. That's what they want. That's the society they want to create. Mm-hmm. And you can't make that society, you know, because sex makes babies. It happens all the time that sex makes babies. Contraception fails. And you have to have some provision for the care of children. You know, and, and the care of children means their parents, right? The, the involvement of parents and social institutions that protect the rights and responsibilities of parents to care for their children so that you have a next generation, right? Um, the incoherence around that whole topic, and then, and then add to it, add to it. One of the big motives behind the contraceptive push, and this is something people don't like to talk about, but the motive was there are too many people in the world, and we got to do something to get rid of some of these poor people. So we'll blast them with contraception. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's a short version. That's slight, slight exaggeration. No, but it's uh, true. It's true that there is uh, there is the push from the antinatalists, which yep. uh, is very strong and very highly, very well funded. And there's another oh, thing. Yes, another thing yes, I want to. Yes, yes. Another thing I want to mention, because I talk to a lot of young people, is the idea that sex could be not only not have the consequence of children, but also not have the consequence of emotional involvement. 
And right. and I think that that's something that for young people has been a terrible uh, experience to be told from the time they're very little that sexual that when they have sex when they perform sex acts with people or <laughs> what a terrible way to speak uh, but when they yeah. have these sexual relations with people that their souls won't be touched that their hearts won't be involved their emotions won't be um, exposed and then what they really find when they go out there is the consequences are enormous for their spirituality right. for their morale for the way they feel about themselves you know there's so much yeah. sadness and depression among the young um, so that was I think that's just another thing that the sexual revolutionaries um, said was was real and it was a complete lie. Yeah, you are so right about that. And and, let, and let's pair that with the other thing that they taught. Okay, they're telling you you can have sex and no nobody will ever have a broken heart. There won't be any consequences. It's no big deal. So that's the it's no big deal side of the coin. But on the other side of the coin, sex is so important that if you don't have an active sex life, you will be mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And if you restrain yourself sexually, that you're going to be, you're, you're, you're just, it'll, it'll destroy your personality. You know, it's absolutely essential that you have sex in order to be a fully, you know, to be a full human being. Now, how can those two things both be true at the same time? It's a big deal or it's not a big deal. And if it's a big deal, what kind of a big deal is it? You know, they don't have a coherent answer to that question. Here's, a, and, here's and another these poor kids. Here's another kids. incoherence that strikes me around what you just said is there's a whole movement now for the to include the asexuals, which are people who don't oh. want to have sex as a sexual mm-hmm. that's a sexual category now. I read about this right. recently. I'm always finding out new things and going, Oh my lord. <laughs> Doctor, aren't you, Gracie? Yeah, but yes, I am a medical doctor, but that's but these aren't these aren't medical you. these aren't medical issues. <laughs> oh, but, well, no, but there is one medical issue here. Let me just ask you this: in, in your professional opinion, has anyone ever died from not having sex? On the contrary, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's true, right? <laughs> no, absolutely true. But right, it's funny right. because that is, you know, that here's another weird inconsistency. They say you you, right. you cannot be happy if you're not expressing every sexual desire to its fullest. At the same time, there's this new group of people that we must include, which are the asexuals, who can't be happy having sex. How okay. can right. how can these how can both of these things be true at the same time? Right. Maybe people right. just no. sometimes ought to have sex and sometimes shouldn't have sex, and you can be happy in both states. You know, right. but nobody and, wants and, to consider that. <laughs> And, it's, and, and you don't have to be thinking about it all the time, and you don't have to identify yourself with it all the time. You know, it doesn't have to be top of mind all the time. Teenage boys, maybe that's normal, but, you know, even even boys outgrow that, right, mm-hmm. uh, to be thinking about it all the time. So, so yeah, so, but, but back to the Ruth Institute and to the, and to the summit that we're going to be having, you know, we're trying to help people understand some of these incoherencies. And, and we break it down into really that the sexual revolution consists of three big ideologies. And if you can, and everything will fit into one of those three, you know, somehow. And if you can figure that out, then then there's really only three topics that you have to master. <laughs> you don't have to be an expert on every single thing out there, you know, in order to be, in order to feel confident that you have something helpful to say and, and, and that you can speak out, that you can express your views. That's, that's really what we try to do, Grazi, is to make it so people feel confident speaking out and saying what they really believe, what they know in their heart is true, what their experience has told them is true, what the church has told them that that is true we want people to feel more confident expressing that so that's that, that that's a whole ball game right there quickly can you tell us quickly yes. what those three ideologies are 
Yes, yes, yes. The first is the contraceptive ideology, which we've kind of been talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And the contraceptive ideology says that a good and decent society should do everything possible to separate sex from babies, which is not possible. But it's a wonderful fantasy, and a lot of people fall. Go for it. Um, The second ideology is is what I call the divorce ideology, which is that a good and decent society should do everything possible to separate both sex and babies from marriage. So you don't have to be married to have sex. You don't have to be married to have a baby. You can be married and not have babies. Combination thereof, sex, marriage, and babies completely separated. And why why do you put that under divorce, which seems to be a different category? Oh, well, because the underlying thought there is that the children don't really need their parents, okay? Mm-hmm. And so, right? And so you can switch partners anytime you want, and the kids will be fine. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about the impact on the kids. Um, if they never know you, or if they if you, if you have a baby without ever having a partner at all, by using a, a sperm donor or an egg donor, that's no big deal. You're very correct that that comes from... Uh, the accept the accept the acceptance of divorce because there is this idea out there that the children will be happy as long as their parents are happy and yeah anybody who has ever been a child or an adult <laughs> an adult around children understands that children are just happy when there is routine and the people that love them are always there even though those people might be fighting they keep showing up, they keep going to bed right. together at night, and that, wow, that seems to me such a, a, such a basic concept, so related to our, to our human needs as children, yes. and it's, um, it's amazing to me, and I hear it repeated a lot, all the time, by people that I otherwise think are, are coherent people who, very, uh, they're very convinced, no, the children, as long as, you know, we're, we're happy and satisfied, our children will be too, even though that means that yeah. the home is exploded and destroyed. Right, no, it's, it's, I would say it's, if not the number one lie of the sexual revolution, certainly in the top three, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of the biggest lies of the sexual revolution, that the, that the kids will be fine as long as their parents are happy, and we have so much evidence that it's not true. We knew very early on that it wasn't true, you know, people were finding evidence very shortly after the no-fault divorce revolution people were finding that it wasn't true. By now, it's completely obvious, and you've got adults who lived through their parents' divorce, who lived through their parents' multiple changes of, of living situations and multiple changes of their parents' love interests and so on, and they know perfectly well it was not fine. They know perfectly well it was a mess. And so those people, we actually put quite a bit of emphasis on divorce at the Ruth Institute because there are so many people in that category, and and they, they need to find their voice, I think. But the one, um, now, the, you person, know, with the, the thing that I find a lot is now is that people don't have any confidence that marriage is even possible, that a lasting marriage is right. even possible because of this uh, terrible trend of divorce and growing up in uh, unstable homes. How, how can we oh. combat the, the idea that marriage is something that belongs to the past when things were simple? Right, right. Well, the reason things aren't simple anymore is because we gave up marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we gave up the, the basic realities of our existence, the most basic social realities of the attachment of mothers and fathers to their children and to each other. That's, that's the most fundamental social reality right there. And if you throw that under the bus... Everything's going to get complicated. You, you know, it didn't have to get complicated, but if you do that, 
yeah, you're going to have all kinds of complications. So, so one of the things that we have done in the past, we used to have a, I used to have a, a, a healing wor- workshop, healing family breakdown, and I figured out that um, that I wasn't very good at that particular thing. Um, but we found some other people who are pretty good at it, you know. So there's a group, a, a married couple, and one of them is a, a child of divorce himself, and they put on a workshop called uh, Life Giving Wounds, is what it's called, and it's really about entering into the suffering in order to overcome and and, and redeem it, you know. Um, and they'll be speaking at our conference. It's Dan and Bethany Mayola, and they will be speaking at the Ruth Institute Summit for Survivors of the Sexual Revolution. They'll have a whole panel on healing the family. They will be among the speakers at that panel. You know, it's funny, when you say survivors of the sexual revolution, I'm thinking, if you are living and breathing in the year 2022, you are a survivor of the sexual revolution. Yeah. I, I can't think of anyone who's not been touched by this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And that's why when we came up with this concept of, of um, talking about the survivors of the sexual revolution, I realized if we could get these people to, to self-identify and to be educated and to be empowered, we would turn this whole thing around, you know. Because if you look at it, the way one way the sexual revolution proceeds is by uh, having a poster child or a sob story uh, of this person is going to have a terrible life unless you do the next revolutionary thing, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, put them on whether whether it's transgenderism or divorce or abortion, unlimited abortion rights, whatever the whatever the soup du jour is, you know. The, here's the victim. Here's the person. This is the person who's going to be harmed if you don't redefine marriage right now. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Right. Someone um, really sympathetic. But, someone very sweet and and harm right. harmless and right, 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 right. But if you rack up the number of people on the other side, you know, you rack up the casualties on the other side. We got our we got our victims too. Come on, you know, we got a lot more people who have been harmed. And you know, the pro life movement figured this out, Grazi, with the with the women who re- regret their abortions. Mm-hmm. That was a very important step, I think, um, in in humanizing the pro life movement and. and becoming relatable to another whole group of people who couldn't immediately identify with the child in the womb, but who could see this, you know, 65-year-old woman sitting there with a sign that says, I regret my abortion. You know, this has obviously bothered her for a lifetime. Maybe there's more to the story. Maybe I'm going to be willing to listen to more of the story than what's just being blasted at us from the propaganda in the media, you know. Um, so that's our basic approach to this thing, you know, is to say, who's been harmed? And let's give them a platform. Let's let them talk. So, so we got we've got Walt Heyer coming. I don't know if you have you ever heard of Walt Heyer. No. Okay, so Walt Heyer is now in his 80s, and he decided that his problem in life was that he should be a woman, and so he tried to live as a woman for like eight years. So he was a pretty early person oh, I think doing yes, this. I do know who he is, yes. And then he figured out that this hadn't solved his problems, that he still had problems, and that actually he had other big problems that nobody had wanted to look at, right? And so, and that, and so he walked it back. He now embraces his male identity. He's married to a woman, and they spend their lives taking phone calls and emails from people who either have tried the transition thing and are trying to get their bodies back or people whose whose children are about to try it and how do we talk them out of it you know how do we help what do we do they've spent their lives now 
trying to help people not go down that path or recover from that path when they've been down there. So so we're going to give Walt an award at our Summit for Survivors of the Sexual Revolution. We're going to give him the award for the Public Witness of the Year um, because his witness is extremely powerful. That you, you can't deny it. When he sits there and says to you, you know, I was never really a woman. Trying to become a woman did not solve a single problem that I had. I had a personality disorder. I had been sexually and physically abused as a child, and that was the cause of my problems. That's what needed to be dealt with. <laughs> when he says that to you, what are you going to say? Are you going to argue with him and say, no, you really were a man? You really were a woman? No, you should go back to being a woman. I mean, what can you say at that point? So right. all these people are, what they're, these young people are experimenting and, and I'm sure hurting themselves terribly. We're going to see so many more survivors. And oh, do you oh, do you think? Here's my question: oh. Do you think we've reached maximum insanity, or do you think no, that there are new no. fields out there for these people to explore? Oh no, we're, we're nowhere near the bottom. This could get worse. Uh, you know, do not kid yourself about this. This could this could we're nowhere near the bottom of the elevator. Let me tell you what these people want. Okay, the end game of the contraceptive ideology the end game there is population control no question in my mind that that's what they want so no family at all well you 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 get to have a birth permit from the government Mm -hmm. that's where these people are headed and the end game of the divorce ideology is contract parenting and what i mean by contract parenting i mean any collection of adults whether they're genetically related any collection of adults can make a contract amongst themselves Um, to decide who is going to have parental rights over any given child. And they need not have any genetic relationship to this child. We didn't even make it to my third ideology. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. We have contraceptive (laughs) ideology, divorce ideology, and... The gender ideology, which we've, in a a way, been talking about Mm -hmm. all along, which which is the idea that the the sex of the body is not particularly important or significant. And so early feminism said that we can overwrite the sex of the body with social and cultural changes so that men and women are more or less interchangeable in the culture. And now we've gotten as far as transgenderism, which says it's so uh, insignificant, the body's so insubstantial, you can rewrite your body with, with technology and with medical interventions and things like that. And we can fool with it. We can do things to it. And, and the end game for those people, listen, what they want is the complete removal of male and female as concepts from all of society. And that was obvious to me even when we were uh, engaged in the debate over gay marriage. And it's certainly obvious to me now, you know, if you look at what the you know, the people who are promoting transgenderism, that is certainly what they want. There's no doubt. Well, the, the inability of our new Supreme Court justice to even define woman, which yeah. that's if you right. had said that to me a year ago, I would have fallen out of my chair. But now that's our reality. When <laughs> when we talk, the time just flies. But please tell our listeners about your the Ruth Institute, where they can find out more and about your summit, please. Yes, the Ruth Institute. You can find us at ruthinstitute.org on the web or you can find our YouTube channel. There's a Ruth, whole, whole Ruth Institute YouTube channel. And you can find out about the summit right there on the homepage of the ruthinstitute.org. And on our YouTube channel, you can see videos from past years. Um, so you can get a little feel for what the summit is like. And the, and the summit will be held June 24th and 25th of 2022 this year in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And there is still time to sign up. There's still time for young adults between the ages of 18 and 30. Uh, to sign up for our Emerging Leaders Program. And uh, we would love to see all of your listeners there. Well, thank you, Dr. Morris. You do wonderful work, and, and may God bless your work going forward. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire. And we have as our guest joining us our good friend of the show, Melissa Overmeyer. She's coming back with us to discuss her new book, which is called From Worry to Wonder, A Catholic Guide to Finding Peace Through Scripture. Welcome back to the show, Melissa. Thank you so much. I'm just thrilled to be on. Well, Melissa, we wanted to hear you uh, tell us about your new book, and I can't think of anything right now more timely than uh, finding peace through Scripture. I'm specifically thinking of the, the horrible thing that's happened this week in Texas, the, the school shooting, and, and just in general, the way that our world is so challenging. It's so challenging to, to our ability to live it with lots of hope and, and optimism. I mean, for very real reasons. And then, of course, our, our brain also plays tricks on us. So from worry to wonder, how do we go from worry to wonder? Well, you know, it is by God's grace, first of all, and it is troubling what's happening right now in the world. And I have had to really think, well, over the course of time, there has always been troubles. And so the Bible addresses the same kind of trouble that we've always, you know, experience. Trouble is nothing new. And so what's amazing is what we can find in scripture is real concrete hope. It's not circumstance-based hope. It's not circumstance-based peace, but it's something that's a sure foundation for us to put our faith in. And so I always begin where I, where the starting place is, I believe, is on our knees in prayer. And then we open up the scriptures and the teachings of the church, and there is where we can find really something to hold on to that can get us through the most difficult times. And that's what I address in this book. And I, the title is really about turning your gaze from your troubles to the answer. And that's what this book is, is about. Melissa, I, um, your book is so important. Um, you know, even just this morning, I was driving my husband to the train station and I said, I'm so worried about everything. And it's like little things all the way to big things. And we get bombarded by things in social media. And one thing I've thought about, you know, especially as Gracie said, in light of this, you know, just another terrible tra- tragedy in the school, there's been a lot of attention on mental health struggles, but also the sort of crisis that's happening with our youth. You know, I see this, uh, just the other day I had a babysitter tell me she, you know, didn't feel like she could come because she was struggling with sort of mental health things. And so is your book, is your book appropriate for some of these young people too? Absolutely. You know, the great thing about, I think, about scripture is it really, it can apply to anyone from the the youngest to the oldest. And so what in this book that we do is I've taken, I'm a natural born warrior. My dad was a superior warrior and I don't know if I inherited it or if I, DNA or if I learned it. But what I had to do is, is really look at a very young age. I was brought up in a scripture-based household and I wanted to see what the Lord had to say about worry. And so from a very young age, I had to learn to do something that didn't literally come naturally for me. And that was 
to not place my faith in in the circumstances, but to to dwell, to take my thoughts captive. Because in Second Corinthians, it's about taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. And that is something that was sort of revolutionary when I learned that you don't have to be subject to just your emotions and every thought that pops into your head, but that we are to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. And then Paul goes on to write, and he says that we have healthy mental boundaries where we're to, to dwell on whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, anything that's praiseworthy. And so I believe you can teach your kids that. My, I taught my kids that before they could even actually pronounce the words correctly. And so even if it's true, it may not be you know pure or lovely or admirable. And so it's basically... Learning to turn your thoughts to what's true and, and beautiful and good and not denying what's out there, but placing those that truth, whatever it is that's bothering you, the worries, into bigger, more capable hands than your own. And that's when the scriptures say, cast your cares upon the Lord for he cares for you. So this book is really a seven scriptures that we can take as a, I call them my word wonder checklist. And it's concrete answers to our troubles and a, a path forward in having to, learning how to deal with them really no matter your age, because it works, truth is truth, right? From the youngest to the oldest person. And, and this book carries you through that. I like what you say, Melissa, the way you, you phrase it as something that we can be proactive about, that we can take control over our thoughts. Because I think nowadays, uh, especially young people are taught to be very in tune with their emotions as something that like waves they have to ride, things that they're not really supposed to control, but su they're supposed to, you know, respect very much how they're feeling about things. And at the same time, we know as adults who've, who've lived more and have more wisdom, I hope that that there is a lot that we can do to to decide what are we going to think about? You know, are we going to dwell, as you say, on the good and the beautiful and the, the elevated and the sublime? Or do we do we allow our, our thoughts to keep going back to the things that, that, that are gnawing at us? I like that. I feel like it's, it's very empowering to, to people, especially young people. Yes. And I have to say, part of this book, so I give you the seven scriptures that are very helpful. They're the key truths, I believe, in the Bible about how to deal with worry. Very concrete, very practical. And then... In the book, I give you then a 40-day journal that is basically an accountability partner to help to retrain your mind. Because as you know, God made us in the most beautiful way with something called neuroplasticity, which allows our brain to make new pathways. You know, we can rewire the way we think. So the the what the journal does is take good information, practical information, concrete steps, but then it turns it into life transformation because we have to cooperate with the grace that God has given us. And so I give you places to write down your worries and then instead of your worries, what are you going to dwell on today? And so that you're, you have a fallback so that you, St. Anthony of the Desert, who I just love, way back, like 200 AD said, we have to practice until practice becomes habit and habit becomes nature. And so this 40-day journal is every day gives you a new chance to turn good information, you know, into a habit and then the habit can become a new nature. And it's so important because otherwise we are just battered around by by the world and by whatever thought. And instead of our reason and our will deciding, we let our emotions decide. And our emotions are to inform our reason and our will, but they're not to be the driving force in our life. And 
you know, this book really helps to get that disorder into correct order, which is basing your your decisions and your will on reason. And there's nothing more reasonable than scripture. Melissa, I have been doing the Bible in a Year podcast this year. And I bring that up because I think Catholics are often portrayed as sort of weak on scripture. And, you know, you're a convert. I'm a convert. I grew up in a Christian home where memorizing the Bible, you know, we had Bibles everywhere. And, you know, I think there is something to be said sometimes that, you know, we Catholics don't know our Bible. But at the same time, I see Father the success of Father Schmidt's podcast, Jeff Cadence, who has partnered with Father Schmidt, also wrote the forward to your book. And you have kind of a similar approach, just like a practical way to bring scripture into your life and to use it in a positive way. Do you... Do you feel like maybe there's a kind of a a Catholic scripture revival going on? You know what? I do. And it's something that's so amazing. When I converted, it was during Pope Benedict, you know, and this new evangelization had begun. And it was so thrilling to me because I thought, oh my goodness, this is so exciting to bring to people something that is part of our heritage. I mean, the saints knew the scriptures. It's something that's part of the beautiful heritage. I mean, Catholics wrote the Bible, you know, <laughs> through the inspiration of the, of, of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, it's like, it's something that's so a part of our, of who we are, you know, of our liturgy is, of course, scripture. And so it is interesting as I travel and I speak and I, and I teach, I've taught the scriptures for over 30 years, 35 years now, and to see how when people that have not been familiar with the scriptures suddenly start opening them up, it's like, the world becomes goes technicolor, like their faith becomes alive in a way that it hadn't been before. And I'm not saying that you can't have a beautiful relationship with Christ through sacraments, because that's what drew me into the church. But if you have sacraments and the scriptures, it is like it is like turbocharged faith, because suddenly these teachings, it, it becomes a friendship and a relationship that goes so much deeper when you're reading these love letters. And so the scripture you know, of course, informed through the lens of the church and the church teachings are just absolutely, they're divine, truly divine. And and the deeper we can go, you can never come to the end of it, but the deeper we go, it just elevates our relationship and our understanding of God. So I can't, I can't really emphasize enough the importance of, of learning and opening the scriptures. And I absolutely adore Jeff Cavins and Father Mike Schmidt and what they're doing and how they have really brought the faith alive to so many Catholics. If you're just joining us, I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire, and we are chatting with the Catholic author and speaker, Melissa Overmeyer, about her book, From Worry to Wonder, A Catholic Guide to Finding Peace Through Scripture. I wonder, Melissa, do you feel that there are two kinds? I When I think about people who worry and anxiety and and of course, I worry too. It's not just other people. But I think that there's some, there's two kinds of worry in a sense. There's the worry that uh, the worried well do, that the kind of people who have this sense of something impen- something bad's going to happen very soon. I've got to worry about it. And, and, and they have like an, an anxious frame of mind. And then there are people who are hand- who are dealing with, you know, terrible circumstances that do cause them to worry in ways that are very strong and, and things, you know, unavoidable worries, right? But I feel like those are two 
separate things. Do you think your book, your book addresses both of these kinds of situations? Yes, I do. And I'll tell you why, because I'm that person. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I'm the natural born warrior who seems to always, I've had to, through these scriptures, and of course, I, I'm so excited about the book, not because of my words, but because of the scriptures that are in them, and then they're proven winners, right? And so I can talk how great it is all day long, because it's God, it's God's word that brings us to a different place, not me, it's God and His grace and His word and the power of it. But then we've also had a lot of tragedy in our family. I wrote this book after my daughter had her neck broken in a surfing accident, and then my sister passed away, who was staying with us, and then and then our house was set ablaze and we've lost everything. So I've not only had just this underlying worry, I, we've had some real life circumstances mm-hmm. that have been very troubling, but it's the same answer. And the answer is always Jesus. The answer is always God. The answer is the sacraments. The answer is connecting to something so much greater than yourself. Because while these things are not God's perfect will, all of these things have been God's permissive will. And if it's His permissive will, then you have to know His hand is in it. And you have to have faith that, well, if God has allowed this to happen, then He's going to give me the grace and what I need to get through it. And so, instead of allowing the enemy to come in and steal, kill, and destroy, which is what he does, anytime he can mess with you, he will. Your your peace or, you know, whatever it is, the enemy is 100% against you, but God is 100% for you. And if you can get your mind around the fact that God is 100% for you. And whatever this is, God is going to cause to work together for good, not just for me, but for my family and for other people. Romans 8.28. And stand on that and stand on the promises that when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, Lord, because you are worthy of my trust. It's about putting your faith in not the circumstances and not what's going on, but in something so much greater and having hope. And my definition of hope is holding on patiently, enduring H-O-P-E, holding on, patiently enduring. And that means holding on patiently enduring anything that's not comfortable, that's not necessarily where you feel good, but knowing that God has purpose in it and that He is, I call it, it's time for an upgrade. When you start experiencing this thing, these things, it's because God means it for your good. Satan means it for your demise, but God always means it for your good. And if you can keep that in the forefront of your mind, then it puts you in a whole new place. And that's where the wonder comes in. Instead of asking the question, why me? You ask better questions such as, God, how are you and I going to get through this together? How are you going to cause this to work together for my good? How, Lord, are you going to make me flourish even in this season of what seems like loss? Because God means it for your good. And that is what we have to keep in the absolute forefront of our mind every single day and renew our mind to that truth. And that's what this book helps you to do. Melissa, I I wish we could talk about this forever because I so need it in my life. But I thought maybe we could close with the rosary. It's the month of May. And I love how on your website you have a, uh, how to on praying the rosary and I think again as a convert I so appreciate that because I remember you know being a convert and thinking I have no idea how to do this can you maybe give us your thoughts on you know what we warriors can find in our blessed mother when it comes to peace well it's so funny the blessed mother found me I have such a great relationship with her because as a convert that was my stumbling block but but then she really has taken 
breaking down all these barriers. And believe it or not, the Our Lady of Guadalupe is my is my go to constantly. And she just in the sweetest ways always seems to give me a little wink and a, and appear just right when I need her in some form, you know, on a coffee mug or someone's t shirt or she's just always there for me. And so I have a rosary being the natural born warrior, I have a rosary in almost every pocket, every coat. I have one next to my bed. I sleep with one under my pillow. And I squeeze it anytime I feel like an anxious thought coming. And then I just picture all the prayers that have been said on anybody's rosary just rising right up to our Blessed Mother and her encompassing me and her blessed in her mantle. And I just feel this peace. So the rosary has been such a wonderful blessing for me in my life. And so I, I hope that that's a gift that I can give to the world. If you are not a, a big fan, become one. Ask that the Lord would change your heart. And because there's no greater comfort, I don't think, than being with your mom, right? And in the in the Blessed Mother is just always there for me. Sorry, it makes me cry, but um, yes, I just love the rosary and I would so, so love to pray it with you. And I pray the rosary every day. And anybody that buys my book, I want them to know that I pray, when I pray my rosary, I always pray a decade for all of those who have bought my book and are struggling with whatever they're struggling with. So uh, you're in my prayers. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to end on, Melissa. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you um, for writing a book for all us warriors out there who have so much to worry about, let's face it, and so much uh, so much beauty and truth from God and Our Lady and Jesus that we can rely on to help us through those times. So thank you, Melissa. Melissa's book is From Worry to Wonder. And also tell us the, the please uh, your website. How can people reach your website? Yes, well, they can order the book on ascensionpress.com or they can order it on Amazon. And my website is melissaovermeyer.com. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so, so much. God bless you and have a wonderful worry-free day. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Depending upon where you live, the conversation may be different. Because those in New England, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Nebraska will hear the gospel of the seventh Sunday of Easter. While those everywhere else will hear what those in the states I just mentioned heard on Thursday, the gospel of the ascension of the Lord. The reason for the confusion is in 1998 and 99, bishops in most regions of the United States decided to transfer the ascension from the 40th day after Easter to the seventh Sunday, believing that if they didn't, Catholics who seldom attend on Holy Days of Obligation would always miss celebrating liturgically this very important event in the Lord's life. Ironically, however, in making that decision to move the ascension to the 43rd day after Easter, the bishops in those provinces were preventing Catholics from hearing Jesus' words on the importance of Christian unity from the 17th chapter of St. John's Gospel, a third of which is proclaimed on the seventh Sunday each year. Catholics in the U.S., unfortunately, do not have unity as a result with regard to the celebration of the Solemnity the Ascension. And I'd urge that just as the Church prays for unity to be restored in the celebration of Easter between Catholics and Orthodox, so we might pray and speak to our bishops about restoring unity on the celebration of the Ascension on the 40th day after Easter. Since there is not unity, however, please permit me to say something about both Gospels, conscious of the fact that since Jesus is our interlocutor in every prayerful and consequential liturgical conversation, everything is intrinsically coherent. In the Gospel for the Ascension, taken from St. Luke this year, 
Jesus tells his apostles and first disciples, you are witnesses and instructs them in his name to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sin to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is the good news that in St. Mark's version of the Ascension, Jesus said they would go into the whole world to proclaim to every creature. This is the way that, according to St. Matthew, they would make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity and teaching them to carry out everything that Jesus commanded. Jesus could have stayed on earth until the end of time, crisscrossing the globe after every lost sheep. But as he ascended, he placed his own mission, his world-saving mission, in our hands. He took the training wheels off of our discipleship and removed any excuses we might have to pass the buck of sharing and spreading the faith. His confidence and trust in us, despite our obvious weaknesses, is astonishing. He wanted to incorporate us into and actually entrust to us his mission of the redemption of the world. But he didn't leave us orphans in doing so. St. Luke gives us the beautiful image and detail in the Sunday's Gospel that Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, raised his hands, and blessed them. As he was blessing them, he parted from them and was taken up to heaven. Jesus departed in the very act of blessing us, and he's seeking to transform us into his incarnate benediction of the world through how we become his witnesses and proclaim his gospel to every creature. The great manifestation of that blessing is the descent to the Holy Spirit, for whose renewed coming we pray in the annual novena, or miraculously decenarium, or ten days of prayer, between Ascension Thursday and Pentecost. Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit in this Sunday's Gospel when he says, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, and instructs the disciples to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That's the power, that's the blessing that came down upon the church on Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. Jesus seeks to send that same Holy Spirit down upon us to help us fulfill the mission he entrusts to us and to become that blessing. This is what happens in the consequential conversation Jesus seeks to have with us on the Ascension. He wants essentially to transform our life-encompassing dialogue with him into one that will invite others into that conversation, into the communion of the church, into the divine life flowing from baptism and the sacraments, into the moral life that flows from observing what Christ commands, into the evangelical life as we seek to share with every creature the treasure of our faith. The Gospel for the seventh Sunday of Easter, we see one of the most important elements Jesus identifies for our being able to fulfill that mission he gives us in the Ascension, both individually and as, as his mystical body. It's an amazing Gospel, taken from what Jesus said on Holy Thursday, 43 days before the Ascension, but which the Church reads with far greater understanding the light of the Resurrection, Ascension, and Descent of the Holy Spirit. In it, we have the awesome privilege to eavesdrop and enter into the extraordinarily deep interpersonal dialogue Jesus had with God the Father the night he was betrayed. In the passage we have this Sunday, Jesus tells us the Father that he was praying not only for the apostles who would remember and write down for us what Jesus said, but for all those who would believe in him through their word, meaning us. What was he praying for, for us? He astonishingly, astonishingly prayed that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one in the person of the Holy Spirit. And why did he pray for that unity among us resembling the Trinitarian communion? He told us, so that the world may believe that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. The credibility of Jesus' whole mission, his incarnation, hidden life, preaching, miracle working, passion, death and resurrection, hinges, Jesus was saying, on the unity among his followers. If we have real communion, if we really love each other as Jesus loved us first, if we truly live as a loving family lives, 
patiently sacrificing for each other, being there for each other in good times and in bad, trying to grow in the love of God together, it will amaze the world. This is what happened because of the communion among the first disciples who were sacrificing everything to live in common as a family, praying together, going to the temple together, eating together. Their mutual love was so extraordinary that people recognized how much they were made for it and sought baptism, trying to make up for last, lost time. That's why Jesus would say that people would know that they're ultimately loved by God in the way that Christians express that love for each other and for them in true communion. People would learn the truth of Jesus' mission, how God who was loved so loved the world that he sent his only son so that the world might be saved through him by the loving communion that would exist among those who accepted that gift, lived according to what he commanded, namely to love one another as he has loved us first, and remained with him who promised at his ascension to remain with us until the end of time. So Jesus, upon ascending into heaven, left us both the content and the means by which we would proclaim, teach, baptize, and witness. It would fundamentally be the love of God existing within the loving communion of the church. Before we ever say a word, people should be able to see the fullness of the gospel existing in our loving communion. People noticing the way we treat each other are meant to see God through witnessing the loving bonds that only God can bring about. That's why the scandal of division is so destructive to the mission of the church. Schism between Catholics and the Orthodox, and later the Protestants. The division among Catholics, some of whom, for example, live and teach by church teaching, and others who flaunt their failure to do so. The fishers within parishes because of ethnicity, or over priest favorites, or over little fiefdoms. The lack of unity even now among some bishops and priests, where some give and others refuse to give Holy Communion, to those who think they can reconcile the commandment, thou shalt not kill, with celebrating and funding a so-called right to kill our littlest brothers and sisters in the womb. The Holy Spirit for which we pray during these days, the Spirit who is the loving, interpersonal, eternal communion between the Father and the Son, wants to help us to overcome these divisions and become one as the Father and Son are one. For the church to fulfill the mission we received from Jesus as he ascended, we need to cooperate with that work of the Holy Spirit and become signs and instruments of unity in the church. The great place where, and the great means whereby, that communion is brought about is, whole, is the Holy Eucharist. By the power of the Holy Spirit, not only are bread and wine changed into Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity, but he also changes different men and women, boys and girls, into one body, one spirit in Christ, as we pray in the third Eucharistic prayer. By our receiving Holy Communion, we enter into communion with Jesus and into communion with all those in communion with Jesus. Through the Mass, God seeks indeed to make us one so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son and loves us just as he loves the Son. This is the truth to which Jesus, as he blesses us in the Holy Eucharist, summons us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Come, Holy Spirit, and bring this truth about. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 